Watermark. My name is Adam Tarno. I'm excited to be with you guys here this morning. Start off with a quick question. Uh, anybody in here like gambling? Some of the guests are like, what kind of church did you invite me to right now? It's all right. Todd's not here. Y'all can answer honestly if you want to. So uh, I am not necessarily a fan of gambling, uh, but I did uh, about 15 years ago make it to Las Vegas for the very first time. My family and I decided to go out there for Christmas because nothing much really celebrates the season of Christmas like the bright lights and the casinos of Las Vegas. And so we went out there and I've been fascinated by Vegas for a long time. I don't know why, probably uh, one night just flipping through the channels and saw a National Geographic special on Vegas and all the security systems that go there and uh, all the, you know, just all the inner workings of the casino. And I loved Ocean's Eleven, the first one, you know, that was a, a great film. And so I was prepared for what it was gonna be like when I went out there to, to view that casino. And I knew that when I showed up and walked into the casino, I knew that they played some tricks on you because they want you to stay focused on the bright lights and the glitz of the casino. And so I knew when I walked into the, one of those hotels that the carpet was gonna be disgusting and nasty because they don't want you to look down. And I knew that the ceiling was gonna be nondescript and just kind of just this black so that you wouldn't be looking up. I knew that there were gonna be no windows in the casino because they don't want you to know what time of day it is. I knew there were gonna be no clocks in there because they don't want you to know what time of day it was. And so I walked in there and was just mesmerized by all of it. Got to try a little bit of everything, try the roulette, played a little bit of blackjack. I watched the craps table and I, I'm suspicious of anybody that really seems to understand that game, but I kind of watched that whole thing go down and cheered when other people cheered. But the, the biggest temptation for me, biggest temptation for me was these things, was the slot machines. Now, they didn't look like this one. This is one we had to rent from a place here in, in Dallas. But the slot machines, nonetheless, uh, were really mesmerizing to me because they're full of bright lights and they make these amazing promises about like a billion dollar jackpot or something like that. And they've got all these noises, these bells and whistles and the, the sound of quarters hitting the metal every once in a while is amazing. And so that's where I spent most of my time. And in my, you know, couple days there over Christmas, I lost all my gambling money at the slot machines, lost it all, came away with nothing. Now, a couple years later, I was reading something uh, about all the different games that are there at casinos, and I realized that there is an industry term for the slot machines. The slot machines are called a negative equity game. That's what they're called, which is a really fancy way of saying these things are designed to take your money. That, that is the way the slot machines are designed. So some of the other games out there in a casino, there may be some skill. Like if you go play poker, you maybe say there's some skill there or blackjack or uh, the roulette wheel. There may be some luck. But the slot machines, like if we opened up the slot machine, what you would see in there is you'd see a bunch of wires because they're, they're computer rigged. And they are rigged to take your money. They are a negative equity game, meaning the more you put into a slot machine, the more it will ultimately take from you. And I know what some of you are thinking, what about those jackpots? And so yes, every once in a while there is a jackpot, but let's be real honest, that jackpot isn't a jackpot. It is really just taking the losses of everybody else and they just give it to you. So here, you can have everybody else's losses. The, key, the, the casinos are still making out with a huge profit off of these things. It's a negative equity game. The more you play it, the more it takes from you. It's impossible to make money when you play slots. You'll always lose. And I start with that this morning because I think there's another game like that in our life. In fact, this is a game that all of us play. 
I bet some of you have played this game this week. I bet some of you have played this game today. I bet some of you are playing this game right now, potentially. And this game, actually, it's, it's similar to slots, but I can maybe even make the argument that it's worse than the slot machines because this game that every single one of us is tempted to play, has played this week, played today, maybe playing right now, this game never has a jackpot. It promises that there's a jackpot. It promises that it's gonna give us something, but it is just like the slot machines. It is a negative equity game. The more you try to play this game, the more this game takes from you. And what is this game? This game is this, it's selfishness, being selfish. And when I say selfishness, here's basically what I mean. I mean that you are primarily concerned with you, your desires, your wishes, your life. It is this thing that is in all of us that tries to manipulate our life or control our life to get everything circled around us. We just want our way. And everybody in here struggles with selfishness. It is a game that all of us play. And the more we play it, the more we lose. It never gives back, never gives back anything. And in case you're sitting in here and you're like, oh, I don't know, Adam, I don't know if I struggle with selfishness. I mean, I think I know some selfish people, but I don't know if I struggle with selfishness. Let me just prove to you that this is a struggle for all of us. Every single one of us, every day we wake up and we have in our mind the way we want that day to go. We want our day to go a certain way. And every single one of us gets frustrated if we don't get our way. We get frustrated because we're selfish. We get frustrated if there's interruptions to this plan that we have because we are selfish. We get frustrated when we have to put our attention or our focus on other people because we struggle with selfishness. We get frustrated when we have to compromise. We all struggle with sharing. We struggle with being generous. We are all easily offended. We all want the conversation and the focus to be on us because we all struggle with selfishness. And what we're going to see this morning is that that game always takes. It's a negative equity game. It never gives anything. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to cover that whole chapter uh, this morning. We're just going to kind of snorkel over it. We're not going to do a deep scuba dive and go look at all the, the details of Matthew chapter 20. But we're going, to, we're going to go through and look at all of it. And when we look at it, at first glance, it's going to seem like there's three different things going on in this chapter. But I think hopefully I can make the argument that I, I believe Matthew really recorded these three things that we're going to look at on purpose. And, and there's a reason why they're all together. So what we're going to see first is we're going to see a parable. And a parable is a story that Jesus made up to to make a point. So we're gonna look at a parable. We're gonna then look at a conversation. We're gonna eavesdrop into a conversation that Jesus had with some of his followers. And then we're gonna wrap it up with some teaching that Jesus had after that that conversation. So we're gonna look at a parable, a conversation, and some teaching. And what we're gonna see, what we're gonna see is that selfishness robs us of something. It always takes from us. It never gives because it's a negative equity game. So if you've got your Bibles, here we go. Matthew chapter 20. Let's jump in first to this parable. This is the story that Jesus is telling. So here he goes. He says in verse one, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A couple hours later, about nine in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you go also work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again about noon and again about three in the afternoon and he did the same thing. Found those workers, said, you go in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. 
Verse six, about five in the afternoon, so towards the end of the day, he went out and he found still others standing around and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you go also work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call in the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones and going on to the first. And so he lined them all up. He had the five o'clock workers over here and the ones that started early in the morning were maybe over there. And so the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each of them received a denarius. And so when those who were hired first saw what they received, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us. And we have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I wanna give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now let's be really uh, clear here. The point of this parable, what Jesus is teaching about in this parable is he's teaching about salvation. That's what he's teaching about. He is letting uh, everybody know that was listening to this that anybody who follows after God, you are a five o'clock worker. You are not one of the 7 a.m. workers. And so if you're in here this morning and you haven't been in church in a while or you don't know who Jesus is or you're exploring the faith and you think that we can come in here and we sing about this resurrected king and uh, we're trying to love people and engage with people and you hear about what we're trying to do to uh, serve the city. And if you think that we're in here and singing and trying to serve and love others because we're 7 a.m. workers and we've showed up and we've always been following after God and we're somehow earning our way to God, you cannot be more wrong. That is not why we're in here singing. We're in here singing because we understand that God, like that landowner, has been incredibly gracious with us. He has given us something that we do not deserve, something we could not earn. He's forgiven our sins. He's forgiven our sins and he's given us eternal life he put Jesus on the cross to die for us. So this, this parable is a reminder that all of us who claim to follow after God, all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, we're like the 5 p.m. workers. We've been given something that we do not deserve. So that's the point of this parable. But there is also a principle in here. There's a principle in here that I think reminds us something about selfishness. And the principle is this, and it's the first point that I wanna make out of this chapter this morning. The principle is this, is that selfishness robs us of contentment. Selfishness robs us of contentment. And so what we see is that the workers were okay and they were content until the money came out. Once they were all lined up and the, the owner started to pay the workers, that's when everything got out of whack. That's when those who started early in the morning, that's when their selfishness kicked in. Their selfishness kicked in and they started to grumble. They felt entitled to more. When they saw that the 5 p.m. workers were paid the exact same amount that they were paid, they felt like that was unfair. They had thought about the way they wanted their day to go. They had become entitled. They started to compare. They started to compare what they got to what the others got and it led to them being discontent because that's what selfishness does. It robs you of Contentment. Let me illustrate it this way. Just a source of discontentment that's going on in my life right now is my garage. 
at home. So my wife and I have a home uh, up in Richardson, just a suburb just north here, Dallas. We've been living in this home about eight or nine years. And uh, this garage, it's a home that was built back in the 50s. So it's an older home. And I believe this garage was original with the home. And so anyway, if you walk out into the garage, I just see everything that's wrong with my garage. The first thing I see when I walk into my garage is I see a floor where the concrete is just cracked and it's all uneven. And there's just a whole bunch of dirt and debris and all kinds of stuff in the crack of that floor. I see dry wall that's falling down. I see wet spots uh, where the roof used to leak all in the drywall uh, right now. And because there's the, the floor is all cracked, my garage door won't shut very well and it doesn't create a seal. So every time we have these torrential rains like we've had over the f- past few weeks, my garage floods, my garage floods. And so I just see everything that is wrong with my garage every time I walk out in there. And my selfishness kicks in every time I walk out there because honestly, I feel entitled to have a perfect garage. I just do. I feel entitled to have that. I mean, I walk out there and I just feel like such a victim. Like, why, Lord, why do I have the garage with the broken floor and the falling down, uh, falling down drywall? Why me? And then I turn on the television and I see HGTV. <laughs> 30 minutes of television that makes you hate your life. And I see these garages where they're like clean, where you could basically do surgery in them. And I'm like, I deserve that. And I walk over to my friend's house and I see their garage and they've got their shelves, you know, and they can put stuff anywhere because their garage doesn't flood. And, and I just, I feel entitled to that. And because I feel entitled, I start to compare. And when I start to compare, I focus on what I don't have. And so every time I walk into my garage every morning, I just feel judged by my garage because I'm looking at what I don't have. I don't have a, a flat floor and I don't have drywall and I, you know, it floods. I can't put stuff everywhere I want to. And so I am discontent. My selfishness is robbing me of that discontentment. There's another perspective though I could have when I walk out in my garage every day. And sometimes I'll go there, but I don't like going there because honestly, it feels better to be selfish and discontent than it does to have this other perspective. But I could walk into my garage. There's a whole nother perspective. I could walk into my garage and I could look at the vehicle that's there in the garage and I could say, this is amazing because I have a home for my car. There's people in this city and there's people around the world that do not have a home and I have a home for my car. That's another perspective I could have. In fact, and I don't mean to brag right now, I actually have two cars and one of them is homeless. I can't fit it in the garage. It's out in front of the house. And the reason why the other car that I have is homeless is because I have more tennis rackets, baseball bats, basketballs, bikes, scooters. I have more sports gear than I have humans living in my house and it takes up all of that part of the garage. And so because I have so much sports gear and I have so many bikes, it's all there. I can't even park that other car in the garage. And so I could look at it differently. I could start to focus on what I have and how amazing it is that I've got two vehicles, how amazing it is that I've got a garage that works with a door and how amazing it is that I've got a secure home. I could look at it that way and focus on what I have. And when we do that, when we change our perspective and we get it off what we don't have and we start to focus on what we have, it's amazing what happens to our hearts because we start to become filled with gratitude. You know what? Yeah, it's not perfect, but it's not that bad. 
it's not that bad. But when we selfishly start to only focus on what we don't have, well, then we're robbed of discontentment because selfishness is a negative equity game. It always takes from you. It always takes. You guys ever been around those people that are wildly optimistic and always in a really good mood? They like whistle, you know, a lot. You're gonna walk into work maybe tomorrow morning on a Monday and you're gonna see this person. I think we've all got these people around our office. They're just, they're just always excited. They wake up in the morning, they exercise, they eat fiber, you know, and <laughs> when they see you, they're just, they're just pumped. They're like, Jeff, you're here. And man, you got a shirt on again and your shoes are tied. You're gonna win the day, man. And, and we've been around these people. They just, they, everything, they're just happy. They're just happy. And you know what's amazing about these wildly optimistic, happy people? Is that they also have another thing. They, they also seem to be less selfish, don't they? They seem to be less selfish. I mean, they're living the same life, basically, we are. They're working in the same offices. They live in the same city. They're reason, reading the same news headlines, live in the same neighborhoods. They've got the same friends. They're in the same community group. And they're, they're going through life just like we're going through life, but they're looking at life a little bit different. They're not only focused on the broken garage floor or the drywall that's falling down. They're focusing on the vehicle that they have. And they're focusing on, on what they do have and they just feel like they've, they've uh, struck gold. They feel like they've won the lottery. They feel like they've hit the jackpot. And so their hearts are filled with gratitude because they're focused on what they have. They're not only focused on what they don't have. Because they know that selfishness is that negative equity game. It always robs from us. It makes us feel entitled and that entitlement makes us compare and then we get envious and then we're not satisfied. So selfishness robs us of contentment. That's not it. Let's move on. Let's keep looking. Let's go now. That was the parable. This is gonna seem, again, like it's not connected, but I think Matthew recorded all this for a reason. I think there's this theme of selfishness and what it takes from us going through here. So now let's look at this conversation. So Jesus just got done with that parable and now he's gonna have a conversation with his disciples. He's gonna have a conversation with his friends, his students, uh, the, the men who he is trying to teach and that he is ultimately uh, going to give authority to, to lead what ultimately became the church. And so here we go in verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and on the way he took the 12 aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. The son of man is Jesus. That's it's basically saying he, that's what's gonna happen to him. I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be handed over. They will contem- condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. So Jesus has this conversation. He says, hey, where we're going right now, it's not gonna go well. This is a, this is a dramatic, emotional conversation. This is not great news that Jesus is sharing with them. Say, hey, we're going up here and it's about to get hard and I'm going somewhere and I'm gonna be severely mistreated. So this is kind of, kind of a big moment, an emotional moment, a moment where Jesus needs his friends to focus on him and to comfort him because he may be anxious. He may be concerned about what's happening. So how did his friends react? Not well, look at this. Then... The mother, 
note that, the mother of Zebedee's sons. So James and John, we know in Matthew chapter four, James and John are Zebedee's sons. So then the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her sons there. James and John were with her, kneeling down. And we're gonna see the reason she knelt down is because the other disciples were around. She had something kind of secret, a question that she wanted to, to share with Jesus or to ask Jesus. And she didn't want the others to hear it. So she knelt down to get close because she had a favor that she wanted to ask of him. She thought now would be the perfect time to ask Jesus for a favor. And so here's what she said. Verse 21, she kneels down. Jesus says, what is it that you want? He asked, she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Verse 22, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink? Basically, Jesus saying here, can you handle the hardship that I'm about ready to go through. Well, now James and John have chimed in and they think, oh yeah, 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 we can, we can, we can do this, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed indeed, drink of the cup. You're gonna go through this hardship, but to sit at my right or the left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And then look at this in verse 24. When the 10 heard about this, so obviously they weren't really quiet because the other disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And I would like to think that the reason they were so frustrated was because they knew, hey, this is not great timing, James and John, right? This is not great timing, uh, mom. Like this is the first recording ever maybe of a helicopter parent coming in (laughs) and trying to make sure that, that her sons were gonna be having these seats. And so the other 10 were frustrated. And the reason they were probably frustrated is because James and John were calling shotgun. And they did not think it was fair. They were saying, we want to sit right over there. That's what we want. And they were frustrated with them. And so in this dramatic moment that Jesus was going through, one of the worst timed conversations and questions and requests for a favor ever happened. And the reason why it happened this way is because James and John and the other disciples were like us. They're selfish. They're selfish. And so here's the other thing that selfishness robs from us. It robs us of empathy. It robs us of empathy. Because if James and John and their mom and the disciples, the other disciples, if they were empathetic towards Jesus, they would have recognized, hey, he's talking about something that's really serious right now. Maybe we should take the focus off of us. Maybe we should shift the perspective off of what we're going through and put it onto Jesus and talk to him. But they didn't because they're selfish. They were playing the game. And it robbed from them empathy. And what I mean by empathy is this. Empathy is that ability of us to shift our perspective, take it off ourselves, put it on other people, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and look at life through their eyes. And to try to imagine what it's like to feel what they feel as they are going through life. That's what empathy is. Empathy is the ability to do that. My lack of empathy is why when my sons, I've got a third grader and a first grader, why my sons, when they get hurt, they go run to my wife and they don't come run to me. They go to my wife because she's full of empathy. She, she recognizes when they've fallen down and they hurt themselves that that must hurt. And so she comforts them and she takes the perspective off of herself and she puts it on them. To me, when my sons get hurt, it's an annoyance. It's an interruption to my day. I'm like organizing the garage because I can't put everything everywhere because it floods. <laughs> and they're interrupting that because I'm selfish. And it robs me of empathy. There, there is a cost. There's a cost to our selfishness and it robs us of empathy. It robs us of, con, of contentment. And when you and I, when we're not empathetic with other people, 
Here's what it does. Here's the cost. It makes us incredibly marginal friends. Really marginal friends. If you guys are like me, sometimes I feel like in my selfishness, I am a great friend to people who are doing really, really well in life right now. Right, when their life is going, to get going well and they're funny and they're easy to be around and they're buying my lunch and they have no drama, I am the greatest friend to somebody whose life is going well right now. But when my friends start to need something, that's when my selfishness kicks in. That's when I start playing that game again. I don't wanna be interrupted. I don't want, this takes work. I don't wanna take the, the focus off of myself and put it on somebody else. And so if we are not empathetic, then that makes us marginal friends. It makes us mediocre spouses those of us in the room today that are married. Because if we're not empathetic, then we think the problem with our marriage is our spouse. And we think our marriage will get better when our spouse changes. We just view everything from our perspective. We think we're right about everything. And so we're just waiting for them to change. And so it makes us marginal friends. It makes us a mediocre spouse. And you know what else it does? It makes us mildly awkward. It makes us awkward. Because what it does is if we lack empathy and if we can't take the focus off of ourself, if we're selfish, what it does is it makes us conversation robbers. We just take every conversation and we turn it towards ourselves or we take whatever situation we're going through and we think it's the worst. I mean, this probably happened yesterday. You all woke up. Some of you maybe put it out on social media. Some of you were talking to your friends. It's just like, oh no, my bracket is busted because Virginia lost, Right? 99% of the country picked Virginia to win that game. You are not alone, okay? Everybody's bracket was busted, but in our selfishness, we're only looking at our bracket. That's what we do sometimes. It makes us awkward. We're we're conversation robbers. We We just think everything revolves around us and we just steal the conversation and we want it to be focused on us. It's like this. It's it's like we all can be like six-year-olds having a conversation. You guys ever observed six-year-olds having a conversation? Six-year-olds don't talk to each other. They talk around each other. That's what they do. I guarantee you over in K1 Race right now, there's two kindergartners having a conversation like this. One of them just said, I like Star Wars. And the other one just heard Star Wars and they said, I ate pepperoni pizza last night. Like completely not related at all. They're just saying whatever it is that they wanna say. And then somebody talked about pizza and they're like, I don't like thunderstorm. And the other one's like, I got a fish named Bojangles. And it's just back and forth. (laughs) back and forth, talking about nothing. They just talk around each other. You know why they do that? Because they're selfish. And it's cute when you're six. It's awkward when you're 36. There's a real cost to our empathy. Empathy is required. I want to make sure you hear this. Empathy is required if we're going to be able to love people. If we can't take the perspective off of ourselves and quit playing the selfishness game, if we cannot do that, we are not going to be able to love other people. This is one of the reasons why we are so well loved by Jesus. Why Jesus does such a great job of loving us because look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. So this, that we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus here, we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So therefore, because we have this savior who can empathize with with us, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
So our selfishness, when we go play that game, it's a negative equity game. It takes from us, it takes contentment and it takes empathy from us. It robs those things from us, but that's not it. Let's wrap up this chapter and look at this teachable moment. So we saw the parable, we saw the conversation. So now Matthew records this, this teachable moment that Jesus had. Jesus being such an amazing teacher, never let a teachable moment go by. Even though his disciples were just pretty unempathetic with him, he, he wasn't gonna sit there and be selfish. Jesus was gonna be selfless and he was going to love his friends and he was gonna share a truth with them. So here's what he says in verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. And so Jesus is basically trying to get a, some ideas popping in the disciples' mind, trying to get a schema going. Hey, you know, you know there's leaders out there, there's Gentiles out there and those leaders and how those leaders, they lord their leadership over people and they uh, exercise their authority over people and the disciples are probably sitting there thinking of different leaders, nodding their head going, yeah, we're, we're tracking with you. We know where you're going. And then here's what he says. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man, there he is referring to himself again, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the last thing that we see here, the third point that I wanna make out of the scripture, this theme of selfishness is this, is that selfishness robs you and I of true greatness. Selfishness robs us of true greatness. True greatness doesn't come from being the best. It comes from giving the most is what Jesus is saying here. I don't think I can adequately describe how countercultural this idea was 2,000 years ago, but it's still countercultural today. This idea that to be great, you have to serve. Because I bet if I sat up here and said, hey, think about all the great people you could ever think about in our culture right now, that we too, like the disciples, we've got some things that pop into our mind. We've got some people that pop into our mind when we think about greatness. And I bet those people have some, some similarities. We think about people that are maybe uh, good looking, people that are smart, people that dress a certain way, people that uh, maybe went to a particular uh, college or university. We think about people that have power, people that have money people that are charismatic, people that are able to command a room and to speak or something like that. We think about all of these things and we go, that, that must be what greatness really is. And what Jesus is reminding us of here is that these ideas that pop into our mind, those people, they may not be great. That's not necessarily greatness. Greatness is found in your ability to serve. That's the path towards greatness. And when you and I, when we're focused on ourselves and when we're selfish and we're just trying to serve our own needs, it robs us of that opportunity to serve and to become truly great. You wanna see some great examples of greatness in our culture? We don't need to uh, turn on the television or look at our social media feeds. We, that, that, that may not be the, the greatest example of people who serve and are walking on that path towards true greatness. We need to go to the hospitals and look at the nurses and observe them and the way that they serve so selflessly serve other people. We need to go to, to schools and we need to observe the teachers that are so selflessly serving other students. We need to go to the fire departments and uh, police departments and look at the first responders. We need to go to the military and look at people that are serving so selflessly our country. You wanna see a great example of selflessness? Just show up here on a random Tuesday in the afternoon or mid-morning and go over there to the tree fort and watch moms 
so selflessly serve their little kids. Those are examples of true greatness in our culture, not what we necessarily think of when we think of greatness. We talk a lot about leadership around here and what Jesus is basically saying is that leading is serving. And at Watermark, we, we emphasize leadership a lot as we should because as followers of Jesus, there is no option when it comes to being a leader. Every single one of us is called to be a leader. And so leadership, we talk about it a lot around here. We disciple that. We want to encourage followers of Jesus to grow in their leadership. And it becomes one of those words that we just throw around so much that we kind of, it's one of those words that maybe loses its meaning. And so I want to share with you a definition of leadership that somebody shared with me eight years ago. And it's one of the best definitions of leadership I have ever heard because it comes right out of this passage. And leadership is this, this is all it is. It is taking initiative for the benefit of others. That's leadership. Taking initiative for the benefit of others, which is incredibly good news. It's incredibly good news because what that means is that leadership doesn't mean that you're the smartest person in the room. It doesn't mean you have to have a degree from some uh, prestigious university. It doesn't mean you have to be charismatic. It doesn't mean you have to be rich. It doesn't mean you have to be good looking. Around here at Watermark, this is encouraging. It doesn't mean you have to be tall. (laughs) To lead well, all you have to do is you have to take the focus off of yourself and put it on other people. Quit playing the selfishness game. And you see needs and you take the initiative and you meet them. What I think about when I think about great leaders is probably a couple of names that you guys think about when you think about great leaders. I think about Todd and JP. Those of you guys that are guests here, Todd Wagner is a senior pastor of Watermark. JP is a campus pastor here in Dallas. They do most of the teaching. They're usually the ones that are on this stage. And I think about those guys and I think they are some of the greatest leaders that I have ever been around as I'm sure some of you guys do too. And, but I know also that I've got a little different perspective that not everybody in the room has. And the different perspective that I have with the privilege of being on staff is I get to see these guys when they're not standing on a stage, when they don't have a microphone and the lights aren't on them and there's not a camera on them. I get to see these guys just kind of in normal life. I get to see them in meetings with our staff. I get to see them uh, interact with their family. I get to see the way they interact with their friends. I get to be at restaurants with them sometimes and watch the way they interact with waiters and waitresses and the way they interact with people out in public. And I am just always uh, amazed at how they emulate what Jesus talks about as the path towards true greatness. I think those two men are amazing leaders because they know and they live out that leadership is taking initiative for the benefit of others. They're great because they are not trying to turn the perspective on themselves. And I think that's what makes it when they do stand up here and they do have a microphone and they do have the lights and the cameras are on them. I think that's what makes them great is because they serve. And when our perspective is on ourself, when our perspective is on ourself, we're not gonna be great. I go so far as to say this. I don't think most of us actually wanna be great. I think most of us in this room probably just want to be perceived as being great because it's crystal clear what we have to do to be great. And I don't think we want to do it. I don't think we want to quit playing the selfishness game. I think we just want what we want when we want it. And we just like playing that game because we think there's a jackpot. And what Jesus is reminding us of here is that there is no jackpot when you play that game. So it robs us. It robs us of contentment. Selfishness robs us of empathy and selfishness ultimately robs us of true 
greatness. And so I'll, I'll close with this. I think one of the biggest obstacles to us living out this selfless life or not being selfish in this life or to quit playing that selfishness game, I think one of the biggest obstacles is just this kind of this selfie culture that we live in right now. We're all carrying these things around. And every time you open these up, there's these apps that are trying to pull us off sides and just going, hey, what's on your mind right now? What are you thinking about right now? What, what, what is amazing about your life that you need to take a picture and share it with the world right now? These apps are just making it sound like it's just all about us. Or we got these advertisements that are popping up on here going, hey, you know what you deserve? You know what you deserve right now? You know what you need right now? You know what's missing from your life right now? You know what's gonna make you more awesome? And we got these cameras on the front of our phones that just make it so convenient, right? Just to snap a picture. And so as I was preparing for this message this week, I came across some ancient writings about selfies and I thought it was a really good reminder, some, some tips on how to take a good selfie and you gotta hold the phone lower, <laughs> lay it down and you need to stop taking selfies. So this Thursday, took a day off and went to go be with my family at spring break for my kids and the weather was amazing here in Dallas last week and so we took off and went down to Cedar Hill uh, to one of the parks down there and did some hiking. And while we were out there hiking, I decided to go ahead and take some selfies of me and my boys. And I will put these up there for you guys to look at because there's something I want you to observe with these selfies. And the thing that I observe when I look at these selfies is this, is I see big me and little everything else. Big me and little everything else. Because that's it's just the way selfies work. You can only get your arm so far away. And so the pictures, what it ends up happening is it's big me and it's little everything else. And I think that's what this selfie culture is doing to us. It's just wooing us like those slot machines wooed me over to play them when I was in Vegas. This selfie culture is just wooing us to continue to play this selfishness game, continue to try to organize and control our life so that it's big us and little everything else. And I'm telling you guys, I've been playing that selfishness game for almost 43 years and I've never won. It has never, ever given to me. It always takes from me. And so here's what I'm doing. I'm doing this. I am, for the time being, I tore off a little bit of painter's tape and I'm taking this tape and I'm taking my phone and I'm putting this tape right over that front camera. And I'm putting it over that front camera, not because I am addicted to selfies. I'm putting it over that front camera because I know I'm addicted to myself. And what I need is I just need that reminder. Every time I look at my phone, and I look at it a lot, every time I look at my phone and I see that piece of tape, it's just a reminder that the selfishness game is a negative equity game. It only takes and it never gives. And it's just a reminder that if I want to stop playing that game, you and I, if we want to stop playing that game, we have got to take the perspective off ourselves. We've got to start looking at life a little bit different, not just look at what's missing, but start to look at what we have and be grateful. We've got to take the perspective off of ourselves and put it on other people and start to be empathetic towards others so that we can love them. We've got to understand that to be a leader is not to just have power. It is to take initiative for the benefit of other people. I need that reminder. We all need that reminder because selfishness robs us. It robs us of contentment. It robs us of empathy and it robs us of true greatness. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. 
Thank you for this reminder of where true greatness is found. Thank you for this reminder that selfishness is a game that never pays off. And I know, Lord, that there are people uh, in this room today who are, who are trying to fight against that game. And I am so grateful for them. And I pray that you will continue to give them energy and motivate them and that your spirit will empower them to take the perspective off of themselves and put it on other people. So God, I pray that as a church, that we as a body will be known as a selfless church. A church that is not seeking our own glory, but seeking to glorify you and to love and to serve other people. And so God, I pray that you will surround us with others that will constantly remind us that this game does not pay. There is no jackpot when we play the selfishness game. So God, I pray that we won't be like the disciples in that moment. I pray that we will be empathetic towards others and I pray that we will be like Jesus, that we will take initiative for the benefit of other people, that you will help us to lead. And so we thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you that he loves us. Thank you, Lord, that you put him on the cross as payment for our sins and it's in his name that we pray, amen.